Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. Uh, this is sponsored by Saga Fitness, these specialists in blood flow restriction training. If you want any more information about blood flow restriction training, visit the link in the description where we've got a full article and video workshop on this. And also, if you're wanting to get your hands on some Saga Fitness BFR cuffs, the link is in the description and also use discount code uh, Boxing Science to save 10% discount on the upper, lower body and uh, the bundle of both cuffs. Uh, today in this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Ruddock, fellow co-founder of Boxing Science. How are you, Alan? Very well, thank you. Good stuff. Uh, today, we're going to be answering your questions. Uh, last episode, uh, were mainly the, um, the questions that I could answer on my own, strength and conditioning-wise, and then I've left some other questions that I want to have a good conversation with with Alan about uh, some around sports science, physiology, and just some general conversations about how to set how we've set up boxing science and uh, kind of what inspires us uh, going forward. So, Alan, first question from Jordan Webster. I saved this one for you because I want to have a, a good conversation about it. Is um, the most physically gifted? Who are the most physically gifted athletes <laughs> you've had come through the boxing science program? Uh, for the following power strength and fitness and he's asked to share some fit, uh, some numbers, numbers well. if you're okay it's a, it's a good question this one we've got yeah. some good questions this episode and this one's one of them so thank you jordan um so we had a, a little chat about this off air didn't yeah. we um and we, we weren't always thinking of the same athletes were we so should we no. start with power yeah so i'll go with with based upon um just talent someone who's walked in the gym before with no consistent history of of strength training um and just being able to pop up you know 50 centimeter plus counter movement jumps which is by our standards a very good counter movement jump mm. isn't it uh and that is lee wood i just think if wba featherweight world champion yep I just think, you know, physically, so much talent, so much, so much potential. Yeah. Um, and I think that's shining through now in recent performances, isn't it? Isn't it? So, yeah. um, yeah, always, always been, you know, uh, impressed by Lee's athletic ability. Yeah. Naturally uh, explosive. Naturally. Yeah. 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 Always scored well on, on our, on our tests. Yeah. He's yeah. been doing more strength conditioning now. He's down with, uh, Ben Davidson, uh, MTK Performance Center. And you can see some of the, lifts that he's doing that's what you'd expect from somebody that's been doing strength conditioning heavy lifting for years and years like you were doing about i think you were doing at least five six reps on 35 kilos in each hand on the uh, dumbbell chest press doing probably double his body weight on trap bar deadlift i remember him coming in uh when leo was training and it just lifted whatever Leo was lift, was lifting uh, without no warm up or yeah. whatever, and I had to tell him to stop stop lifting without a warm up. But it just had that jet that 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 natural power, mm. strength, and speed. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing his fight. It's great to see him like uh, after all the setbacks, all the years that's been putting in the gym. You no, know, we've known Lee for over ten years now, and to see him kind of get this success now and be world champion and being a massive fight that everybody's talking about against Michael Conlon on March 12th. Um, it's great to see. It's great to see. Um, some of the, some things that come to my head uh, in terms of fitness, uh, Jordan Gill at the minute is is the fittest 
on the programme All Round Fitness because there's different kinds of fitness. Jamie and Gav McDonnell were the ultra endurance athletes um, when they were doing, when he was doing four minutes on, two minutes off in the heat at 19 kilometers an hour. Um, Kieran just did his UKSA case today was saying about Sultan doing 16 kilometers an hour and his assessor was really impressed and asked whether them numbers were real. And they were, Kieran was just like, yeah. And then he asked me just like, we're like, was that really good from Sultan? And I'm like, yeah, it's really good, but it's not the best. What we've what we've seen, uh, the best were Gav doing nineteen in the heat as well. Um, so that that kind of fitness, and then Jordan hitting nineteen kilometers an hour on the lactate profile, something that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, and his lactate weren't even that high um, when we first tested him. We looked at his previous lactate profiles. I think we were getting to about fifteen or sixteen in um, lactates of seven millimole per liter. Um, and I think he's off the top of my head, he's only in about five or six at 19. So there's a massive shift in his physiology there. Um, any, anything else that comes to mind in terms of <laughs> one, you know, fitness? One, one thing to, to note, Jordan, is that he was okay. His yeah. fitness was okay. Yeah. It wasn't the best. Um, you know, it was, it was just pretty much standard for the Ingle gym when he first started working with us. Yeah. But just through consistency and hard work, smart training over a number of years, he's now got to that level where he's broken all the records that we've got. Yeah. And like saying like Jordan probably wouldn't be able to do what Gav did on four minutes on, two minutes off in the heat at 19 kilometers an hour, but then he's able to do the 30 second max out sprints with the least the top speed and least decay, uh, be able to push himself to the highest lactates. It's more versatile, isn't it? Yeah, um, and that's what we train buff, as well. Muscle buffering capacity, fantastic. So we train train that versatility, yeah, and adaptability, and yeah. that's what training the adaptations and that that is our philosophy. That's what enables boxers to be versatile and adaptable in different mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than just being focused on one thing and making that your strength mm. and, and super strength. Yeah, he does have those, mm. but he's also got the variety as well. Mm. And then um, Lerone, fantastic athlete, uh, very explosive, uh, lower body, um, trap bar deadlifting, uh, well above 2.2, 2.3 times his body weight now with ease. So that he's, he's pound for pound strongest on the program. Um, two others that I'm going to mention that are on the program that I'm really excited about. Hopi Price, um, he has got that natural spring and natural speed, low body, hand speed. It's, it's fantastic. And now he's getting the strength, the man strength, <laughs> as they call it. But it's it's like he's, he's jumping uh, 52.9 centimetres. That's a 12% increase from the last training camp, uh, the last time we did testing with him. His RSI has improved by 19%. Um, so we it came into the program really springy and really explosive, but now we've added that strength that we're making big improvements. But then um, on the YouTube channel the other day, we put up his load velocity profile and we showed how he compared to the boxing science average. He's still below that average in terms of strength. So 
once we keep building these blocks, because it's going to be harder for Hopi because of his stature, mm. uh, long arms, long yeah. legs. Uh, it's not like short and it's not short and stocky, but the lifters build. So he's going to find it harder to get stronger. But once he gets that strength, which 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 we're seeing now, add it to the natural spring that he's got is is going to be some athlete. And I'm seeing the changes now. Amazing, and I'm looking forward to these next two fights that he's got. So I hope he's 22, isn't he? Yeah, it's still 21, 20, 22 soon. 22 soon, yeah. yeah. So I was listening to um, Five Live Boxing Podcast the mm. other day and Steve Bunce was talking about man strength. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about Dennis McCann and how yeah. traveller communities sometimes get their man strength earlier yeah. than, you know, other yeah. other communities. Yeah. You know, so maybe Opie's coming into the man his, strength his man strength phase yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got Stephen Cairns, 19 years old. He is naturally explosive, again, hitting over 50 centimetre counter movement jumps. RSI, hitting about uh, three RSI, which is excellent for boxers. Mm. Um, and then his strength, he can already lift two times his body weight on trap bar deadlift. He's only been on the programme for a few months. Um, upper body pressing is uh, lifting 35 yesterday, 35 kilos. 19 years old. Yeah. So where's he gonna be when he when he gets his man strength? Irish strength. Yeah, Irish strength. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Stephen, fantastic athlete. And then gotta mention uh, when we worked with um Kel Brook, Kick Galahad, they these were like all rounders. They were eight or nine out of ten mm. on every single aspect and the ability to to grind through the weeks and the commitment and everything yeah. was was something special. Yeah. Yeah, their, some of their training weeks were really, really tough weeks, and yeah. that you know that that ability to just dig in and get it done. Yeah. I remember um, Kel saying the hardest part of his day was getting out of bed. Yeah, and he said he, he, when he got out of bed, he knew he could get through the day. Yeah. Um. So yeah, yeah, but he he was you know fit when we got when we got him fit. It could be mm. you know challenge anyone. Um, just naturally strong as well. Again, yeah. no. He held the curve record for years. Yeah. Until did. we got a new curve. And then everybody <laughs> beat it. He were on the old curve, which was yeah, like a tank. Like, just like so hard to move. Yeah. And nobody beat it until they went in the heat. Yeah. And they were doing yeah. sprints in the heat. Yeah. But nobody beat beat that. And yeah. like, say, he could do, he could do that. He could lift strong, like, but yeah. it, it didn't do like, uh, strength conditioning for a couple of years and then when I trained him for the Glofkin fight it was what the the weights that he was able to lift within a few weeks yeah. that muscle memory yeah it was just like I couldn't believe how, how, how naturally strong he was and his landmine punch throws as well yeah landmine punch <laughs> dangerous yeah. so the landmine <laughs> the landmine punch throw is a test that you'll have, have seen quite a lot on or across our social media channels and we was playing with the idea uh, me and Ash Downing were playing with the idea in the <laughs> in the uh, gym at Hallam, and uh, I was catching Ash Downing's. The next one that I caught was was Kel Brooks, <laughs> ten days out from a fight, uh, twenty kilo Olympic lifting bar, threw it at me, and it's I think it was about four point six meters per second, which is just phenomenal, yeah. really. And his trajectory. Um, 
in terms of like his his speed was like more than heavyweight. Yeah. Um, on on his because we did we we used to do the load velocity profile on the Lamine punch from twenty kilos twenty five. Yeah. And then we could predict his max force. Yes. His his speed at, at zero kilos. Yeah. And uh, yeah, match match the heavyweight. Yeah. So yeah, he were he were really good like for that all yeah, round strength, speed, power, fitness, and then that ability to grind it out during camp. Yeah. Dom Ingle always calls it the X factor. Yeah. And you kind of see that in different athletes and his ability. Like when I was on camp with him for the Glovkin fight, a few things started going wrong. It started getting a little bit run down. And because it was the biggest fight that I've been involved with and I was relatively inexperienced then, I started like panicking a, a, like about it and Don was just like, it'll be all right. Just give him a few days off, get him, get him work, start building it up. He was like, he went away from like doing the high intensity runs, mm. uh, the high intensity, like, like the heavy lifting and stuff like that. Just did some low intensity stuff doing some like kind of bodybuilding stuff like weights and just getting his body moving. And then in a few days, he were fine and back, back to normal and being able to grind, being able to grind it out. And I learned a lot from working with Kel and from working with Dom as well and being in that environment. Yeah. Okay. So we're picking this back up after the vacuum cleaner got, <laughs> got involved. Um, I actually answered this in the last Q and A. Um, so you can see all these questions that I'm saving for you. Um, so this is from Darren Michaels. And the reason why I say this is because he's asked the top three pieces of equipment uh, that a new strength conditioning coach should be purchasing um, in terms of like lab equipment, stuff like that. And I decided to answer it from a strength point of view, uh, saying about my jump app, uh, accelerometer, and uh, the SARG Fitness blood flow restriction cuffs. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Alan, from a physiol physiology standpoint, mm -hmm. easy for me to say, uh, which are the three things that people should be looking to purchase? Definitely a heart rate monitor, Bluetooth heart rate monitor, yep. if possible. They're not expensive at all. Basic ones are about £35, £40. Pounds. You can get more expensive ones that <laughs> give you a bit more detail. Yep. Um, that detail really is not... For boxers and coaches, really isn't doesn't give us anything extra. Doesn't really change our practice at all. It's yeah. stuff like around ground contact time, stride length, that kind of stuff. It's not yeah. not stuff that we really look at. So basic heart rate monitor um, paired to uh, any heart rate app. Yeah. We like to use Polar Beat. Yeah, Polar Beat because we're we're very simple. Yeah, <laughs> we like the color coding. Yeah. on the Polar Beat. And see, I see some of them, and it's like so hard to yeah work out. Yeah, just keep it keep these things keep it simple. Yeah, and then you can make quick decisions. Yeah, keep it simple, make quick informed decisions. Yep, you know, and then you can make sure your training's optimized because of that. So, um, Wahoo, we've never had any problems with Wahoo. Wahoo ticker. Um, you've got the Polar H10 yep. and H7. H10, H7, and the OH1. Which sits on the arm, which yeah. is fantastic and for boxers. And there's another um, polar armband too. And Wahoo yeah. doing armband. Are they? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, because the armband is good for because it's quite versatile for boxing. Um, sometimes boxers don't like wearing heart rate monitors whilst they're sparring. Yeah. Uh, 
tight sensation and maybe getting hit on it. Yeah. Uh, but oh, they have any problems when they actually wear heart rate monitor during sparring. Yeah. And then, and but to save them from that kind of uncomfortable feeling whilst they're sparring, yeah, having it on their arm is 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 really good. Most watches, sports watches now have yeah. optical sensors in them. Yeah. Don't trust them. No. Lie. <laughs> yeah. Good. They're not good enough. No. They're just not good enough. And um, now they log the data and now they actually share the data as well. Like you see heart rate trends and calories and stuff like that, but we want to see how much time is spent over yeah. 80% max heart rate, yeah. 90% max heart rate. Yeah, I mean, you can do that with... With the Polar Beat app. Yeah. It's great. And the other thing that's good with that is that you can create a cloud account. Yeah. So and, yeah. you can push that online. So all your training is stored online. Yeah. So me, me and Lee work together with a few athletes and we log into their Polar Beat. Yeah. And we see kind of what their boxing sessions look like. If we've set remote conditioning, we can have a look instead of yeah. the us having like badgering them for yeah. screenshots and everything we can actually look in yeah, yeah. so definitely def- definitely um it doesn't matter if you've got a wahoo bluetooth heart rate monitor using the polar yeah they don't know <laughs> um <laughs> yeah yeah that that's that is a thing because like the, you think that if you're using polar beat you need to use a polar heart rate monitor but the wahoo actually mm. links up so yeah. we, we have wahoo heart rate monitors here yeah um and yeah, Paul will make it easy for us to, yeah. to do that. So to, yeah, thank you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um, then- conflict, conflict of interest between the two there. <laughs> you've, you've got to make it work, haven't you? You've got to try yeah. and you know make it as simple as possible. And that's the, the simplest way that we found. Just, yeah. just happens to work that way. Cool. So that's uh, number one. Number one, um, we have a very expensive lactate analyzer here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Biosen. The Biosen. But we also have used portable lactate analyzers so yeah. they cost about 300 pounds something like that and about about two pound mm-hmm. per single test um so much more affordable than the thousands of pounds that that we have paid for for the biosome but we take so much lactate information anyway so much data that it becomes more economical for us over time but you know if you're if you only take in data every now and again, or you're taking it in a test, you know that cost, that outlay becomes a lot more economical for the individual, especially if you can build it into the the cost of testing as well. That's just going to you know give you a, an, an insight into that magnitude of acidosis that you know you're looking for when you're doing muscle buffering sessions, yeah. or if you want to do a lactate profile to get an objective, standardized test. Um, and look at changes in, in fitness. Um, they're going to give you some some good insights there. Yeah, like we when we were looking at like whether to get the Bison or the um, Lactate Pro Two, um, we accounted for the cost of the consumables. So the Bison is is obviously more expensive for us, but at the same time the consumables were less, and how much we use the the bison um we, it actually worked out cheaper yeah. in the in the long run because on lactate uh, lactate pro 2 the, each consumable costs about two pounds yeah. and maybe it might have gone up more everything's going up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything's going up so uh so yeah so we worked it out that over a year we'd we'd have matched 
the the um how we've used the lactate per two to the to the bison and mm. obviously we'd have to spend a lot more in the following year and i think to be honest i think we've used the bison a lot more this year because it's been there mm. we've used it on circuits we've used it yeah. on um every 30 second max out sprint session every muscle buffering session this is something that we weren't doing when we were at the uh university so yeah so we are using it a lot more so like if we were to use that tip per two, I think we'd have gone bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to use that tip per two, you've got to work out how much he's charging for your session. You can't just go with a nilly and just start going, taking somebody's latte, charging them 40 pounds, and but you've spent 30 pounds in consumables for that session. Um, you've got to use it quite st- uh, strategic. So if you're wanting to do a lactate profile, and you can charge more for doing sports science testing um, and work consumables into that cost. I think that is the best way to use the Lactate Pro 2. For muscle buffering sessions, maybe don't measure it as often as we do. Maybe do two or three assessments. We normally do it after every third rep on the repeated sprints or after every rep on the two minutes or three minutes off. Um, have don't do it every session. Yeah. So get an i get an idea. Yeah. Of uh, lactate in that session. Yeah. And then do another two or three sessions, and then come back and test it again. Yeah. And use RPE. Well, that's what what we do with our remote athletes. Yeah. That come in. Fabio Wardley. He's on a muscle buffering block. Um. Well, all of this camp because he's a heavyweight. Um. So I set him. Uh, the first time he came up, we did two minutes on, three minutes off on the air bike. I knew exactly what is uh, what I should be doing these sessions for the next three weeks. Yeah. So then I set him some targets, and, and after a few weeks, I know that it's going to create some adaptation. So let's go a little bit harder. So I set him a higher target in a few weeks. It's coming this week, this weekend, uh, doing twelve seconds on, forty-eight off. Get the wattage, and it it was so um, insightful, really, because. Like you normally go for about ninety percent of the uh, of the max watts, and thing is, Fabio is so explosive. Mm. He's hitting like over two thousand watts in his warm up, and without really like needing to push there. And then we went like way below. We went to about seventy percent of his max watt, uh, max output, and bang it muscle yeah. buffering so yeah. so it was so important for us because i'd have just gone yeah go 90 percent go to 1800 yeah. or something like that um and what he'll done he'll just been in no man's land yeah. just beating himself up for no yeah. reason yeah. on it so it was so vital so that's something that you can do with lactate pro 2 analyze it set the speeds and the intensities that you need and then in a few weeks time assess like how how they're moving forward so yeah so that's Harvey Monitor, Lactate Pro 2. I've got one we've, more. We've spent £440 so far. Uh, um, okay, so um, the next one. So um, do you know when the first stopwatch was made? I bet you don't. No. That's a loaded question, isn't You've it? been reading. It's in the- <laughs> <laughs> um, it was in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was made by uh, a French watchmaker called Louis Monet. Mm. and he wasn't interested in um, timing things, sport, anything like that, because sport wasn't a thing in the 1800s, was it? But no. astronomy was, so they were they were uh, plotting um, phases of the moon, for example, and like charting planets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Um, so that's when the, the first stopwatch was made. Okay. And because we take so much data here and we're always recording it, I thought, Somebody has got to have made a Bluetooth. We've got Bluetooth heart rate monitors. There must be a Bluetooth stopwatch. So if I'm taking a time of mm -hmm. something, I can essentially create a log of all those times for a particular session. Right. And that, and then that that data would then get transmitted to an app, just like a heart rate monitor. Yeah. So we're still basically using the same stopwatch as we were 200 years ago. But on a iPod, uh, sorry, not iPod, iPhone. <laughs> so the problem with yeah. the with like doing it on your um, iPhone or yeah. doing it on it your doesn't, iPad doesn't log. It doesn't log. Yeah. So I found an app. Yeah. On that you can download. I think it was about three quid, something like that. That you can um, use your volume buttons to start and take your split times. Yeah. It logs your, your split times, and then you can export it. You can you can send it to WhatsApp or you can um, email it to yourself or you can download it to your phone as a comma separated value file yeah. so you could analyze it in Excel. So that is the other thing that I would say is find the app which I forgot the name of yeah. stopwatch app. Um, Great recommendation, this mate. <laughs> <laughs> or create a Bluetooth stopwatch. Yeah, to analyze the data, but a stop, a but just a stopwatch yeah. as well. Interval timers good. And on, on um seconds timers quite good. Yeah. But is it is it just called interval time that uh website that we did the red zone runs on? No, it's called seconds at seconds. So seconds, yeah. So yeah. you can load in a uh interval session yeah. in there, but you can only load in the time, so it only tells you when to run or stop or yeah. you know, rest. It doesn't it doesn't time it doesn't say well yeah. you, if you're out running yeah. You know, and you've got, um, and you're on the track, for example. Yeah. And you want to know what your, your rep time is for 200 meters. Yeah. It, it will all give you the time. So you'll all be running, you know, 300, you know, not 300, but yeah, you, you might be running a certain amount of distance, but it's not going to tell you that in the app. So yeah. you, you want to stop watch that really records um, time over, yeah. over a particular distance. Cool. So we've got, um, in your top three, we've got, Heart monitor, um, portable lactate analyzer, a stopwatch. Next question is from Adam Lusby, aka Enhanced Sports Performance. Have you looked into the Moxie monitor? If so, what are your thoughts? Not the Moxie monitor specifically, but we have used uh, near infrared spectroscopy in research before. Um, so my favorite word <laughs> spectroscopy no, I can't say that so I've published quite um, a few papers uh, where ha I've used NERS that's the abbreviation mm. you could say NERS mate that'll be yeah that'll do on it NERS <laughs> either um, New York accent so the, the one of the papers um, that were published in European Journal of Applied Physiology was looking at whether or not the technology changes dependent on, upon skin blood flow. So if anyone's not familiar with this piece of technology, it's basically, it emits different wavelengths of light into the muscle, what, through the skin, through the dermis, through the, um, through the muscle, um, and then tries to capture 
what is happening in terms of oxygenation, deoxygenation, um, hemoglobin status, we'll call it, within that localized area. And it does that by emitting different wavelengths of light and then the amount of light that is either scattered or absorbed is proportional to the metric that it's trying to calculate. Mm. Um, so it, it assesses things like muscle oxygen saturation, um, total hemoglobin, um, de deoxid uh, hemoglobin, I think as well. So it gives us an insight into what's happening at the periphery from a, um, an O2 metabolic perspective. Mm. Um, what we found is that um yes there is in some in some metrics there is an, inf an interference when you get hot on your skin and in others there isn't but this was done probably about 12 years ago now that yeah. we did this and we also did it with a lab-based um system mm -hmm. um i also tried to use it in my phd so i've got a great picture of gary hutt Mm. Um, where TB boxing strength conditioning coach Gary was uh, he did some pilot testing for me so I've got him in the in the lab he's wearing nerves around his leg yeah he's got ECG electrodes on his chest to look at um, cardiac hemodynamics yeah which didn't work he's got yeah. skin blood flow sensors um, on his arm, he's got skin temperature sensors on various different aspects. He's got a heart rate monitor on. Yeah. He's got a, um, a mouthpiece in so I can collect his expired air, and yeah. he, ju he just looks like a you know a cyborg. And I'm just yeah. and I'm getting him there doing recumbent cycling yeah. in the heat and looking at his physiological responses. Oh, I've also got a temperature um intestinal temperature monitoring there as well. So uh, it was like a little tablet, a little like pill, yeah. yeah. I had 24 hours before yeah and then you had to um basically have it in you yeah so i've got in your intestine so it works, works its way to intestines and then yeah. you can assess temperature from there so i had all this all this stuff going on so i tried to use it in in my phd but it didn't really give me um the, the insight that i wanted it to to give me so i ended up not uh using it in any of the the further studies or or um any publications um but what I would say in terms of the use of muscle O2 saturation is that I've not seen any information, any way in which it can help us in mm. prescription of training yet. Yeah, well, that's the main thing. As that's well. the main like, thing. When you, whenever I ask you about like tests or anything like that, you always say, how is it going to influence your training? Yeah. How are the results going to influence your training? And I'm like, yeah, and, so you, and like with the tests that we do, counter movement jump, squat jump, RSI, load velocity profile, they all influences yeah. what kind of training that that athlete does. Yeah, and that like even though that it can give you some information, it's like what you're going to do. How is that going to influence your training? Yeah, you might improve it when you next when you next test it, but it's like you need to be able to. It, each test has to give you information to influence your inform your, your practice training. yeah otherwise so what yeah <laughs> why yeah. are you wasting your time just like we're saying you've got to be economical with your costs if you're you know looking to use field-based equipment yeah you've got to be economical with your time and your data as well mm -hmm. so if that data is not informing your practice why are you, are you assessing it? It's fine as the description. Mm. This is what we've always done in sports sciences. We've done, we've got athletes in, tested them, 
That's your VO2 max. Go away, do a training program, come back. Yeah. Oh, your VO2 max has gone up. That's key one, VO2 max. And this isn't a question. Just whilst we're on the subject, why do we prefer doing a lactate profile compared to doing a VO2 max? Because that lactate profile allows us to prescribe training, enables us to establish training zones. Um, It's also uh, an objective test because it's a fixed intensity trial mm-hmm. whereas a vo2 max test is a self-paced trial so you can choose when you want to terminate that test yeah um just like on the 3015 test you can choose when to terminate it yeah um so in a way your attain your attainment of aerobic capability vo2 max is limited by is, yeah, is in, influenced by your perception. Yeah. So if you're not having a really good day, then you're probably going to stop exercising. And it's before. the way that you do it as well. Obviously, boxers are more, more wanting to run in. So if you're going to do VO2 max tests on a bike, you're not going to over, you're not going to like kind of overstimulate the the boxer to be able to reach the VO2 max. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas we know that. Uh, the lactate data that we get and where we can establish thresholds is reliable. Yeah. So you can have something that's, you know, invalid and, you know, unreliable and you could probably still use it with a a few fudge factors. But if something's unreliable and that is changing day-to-day and that day-to-day variation is large, you can't be confident in your interpretations of one prescription or two, whether a, a training phase or intervention has worked so it needs to be reliable the lactate profile we use we know is reliable because i've done reliability work on it for years and years and years Mm. so i know within a quarter of a kilometer per hour is where fixed lactate concentrations of two and four millimole will Mm. will occur um based upon all the hundreds of of tests that Mm. that we've done and the reliability work that we've done so we know the variation is low, yeah. so we can be more confident. Plus, we get training zones. You know, mm-hmm. we get perceptual responses. We get heart we rate. We see what the trend of lactate accumulation is. Yeah, and we can look at the trends. One. Yeah, yeah. Can, so and we can profile if we've got a gas analyzer. That gives us a little bit more information as well, because then we can look at substrate utilization. We can look at energy expenditure. Mm. We can start to then look at economy as well, which mm. is. Um, on a recent workshop that was almost like the word of the weekend wasn't it mm. is economy and yeah, it's come yeah. up again yeah, three yeah. times already yeah. economic being economical with your data being e- economical with your uh, finances um and having an athlete that's economical as well mm-hmm. um so going back to the moxie I've not I've not seen anything or anyone yet, albeit I haven't been looking very closely, mm. a, a way in which you could use that information to change the prescription of the intensity mm. of exercise or the duration yeah. of a. Of I, like, an I like to have a look at it. I like to definitely yeah, yeah. have a look at it yeah. and see how we can how we can influence the training definitely. So this, this, there are some things that we, we talked about before the podcast mm. of how we might be able to use it to get an insight yeah. into, into some areas. Um, but And it would give us a good description mm. of physiological responses mm-hmm. um, that then might lead us to an explanation and prescription. But at the moment, the way that I see it is just 
just a, a, a descriptive response, mm-hmm. just an, an observation. Okay, so next question is from Anton. Um, what sports... Well, it's two, two questions here. It's said all, but we'll answer both for you, Anton. Uh, what sports with established strength conditioning platforms outside of combat sports are you both inspired by when it comes to, de- to developing the boxing science strength conditioning methodologies? And also, what motivates you guys to do what you do uh, within strength conditioning for boxing? Mm. So, mine is a bit left field, as always. Don't worry, it's not about space or NASA or anything like that, mm. or stopwatches from the 1800s. <laughs> um, mine is the Norwegian Olympic Institute, um, and specifically cross-country skiing, not just because that the, the Winter Olympics are on now, is because what they have done consistently over the last 20 years, probably even, even longer than that, is just produce some absolutely fantastic insight into how elite athletes train and win Olympic gold medals. Yeah. Um, so you might have heard us talk about the polarized approach to training before and how we might we use a reverse polarized approach. But that way of thinking came from um, these guys up in Norway, uh, you know, just asking the question, how do elite athletes actually train to win these medals? Yeah. And they're able to answer the question because they have established a really good method for just taking basic training information. So all their top athletes will complete a training diary. So every day. And so they're able to to look into just the basics, but also heart rate data speed data, power data, mm-hmm. um, all that kind of information that then they can use. That The importance of that information is just aggregated over time, isn't it? And then mm. they can use that information to answer these really basic questions. Yeah. And so that has formed my philosophy into tracking, collecting data and making decisions based upon that data. So, yeah. so that's where I... I look to outside of combat sports. Yeah. I think like, like just what you're saying then about like taking as much data as, as possible. I think that that is something that we do at boxing science. I never realized that's probably the reason why, um, like when we did the, um, the testing battery and you were getting me to do more, um, whatever, but whatever regressions, tests, regressions from <laughs> SPSS. And I was like hating you because I was just like, <laughs> I just wanted to get this done. And you were just getting me to run like, uh, different, uh, correlations with mobile punch. Uh, the thing is the amount of data that we had and the different correlations that we could create, uh, and, and analyze has actually influenced a lot of our training. Mm. Uh, something that we've but obviously talked about earlier on in the podcast um, stuff with the trunk muscle mass um, being the strongest contributor to a punch um, free fat uh, fat free mass as well and obviously jump height as well and they, these are things that I wouldn't have looked into if it wasn't for you I'd have just gone yeah these are these these are the uh, the standards for um, for amateur boxers and and that's it. So yeah, collecting as much data and, and if you collect the data, then you can do a lot more with it. 
Uh, we're just having this with uh, Tommy at the moment. Yeah. Like I've got loads of Jimmyware data over the past year that I haven't even looked into. But now we've got it on the Jimmyware cloud. I've just said to Tommy, Philly boots on. <laughs> you, go, <laughs> you, go, you go and analyse all this. But it's, it's the actual recording of the data so we can look back at past performances, um, different trends, uh, different exercise types, different cl- like uh, set types as well, difference between doing five reps and doing cluster sets and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah, collecting as much data as you can, even though you can't um, analyse it yeah. only that day only that week or month or whatever. But as long as you've got the speeds, the heart rates, the lactates, the uh, lifting velocities recorded, then you can always go back into it. And I think yeah. that's, that's a vital thing. And especially when we're training so much. Um, so it's, we've got just a huge backlog of data. So yeah, that for, for me, like you being influenced by that has influenced myself. Yes. Um, I'm going to cheat on this. So, um, because you can't say not combat sports and, and uh, trying to look at like what inspires us and even though they're quite new, relatively new, UFC Performance Institute, what they have done in the last four and a half, five years is fantastic. Uh, the data that they're collecting and the sport is so chaotic and there's so many different outcomes there's so many different athlete types and everything. But as long as you've got the data there, that will influence what you do with that certain athlete and, and everything. So I think um, UFC Performance Institute, 100% inspired by them. Uh, when we were putting together the Boxing Science Performance Centre, um, we had the mindset of making it into a mini performance institute uh, with the heated infrared sauna blankets, uh, looking for like the, the the more affordable way of doing it. Uh, we haven't got a force platform, so we've got some weighing scales instead. When we do the isometrics, we've got a, a portable dynamometer. Uh, so we're doing we're trying to emulate the box uh, the uh, UFC Performance Institute uh, on a much smaller budget, it's a lot smaller scale. But that is a massive influence. Um, in a few years' time, I'd love to have a bigger facility where we've got everything under one roof for the boxers that want to engage with the boxing science program. Um, nutritionists, we've got Lee Rickards here now. We didn't have that before. Yeah. Um, worked with a few of our boxers, but wasn't as active Involved, as yeah. it, um, kind of present and not working with as many boxers as he's doing now. Um, it's been great to have him involved and approaching everything with that multidisciplinary yeah. team. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier. Um, we've had physios come into this facility. Um, we wanted to get something a little bit more permanent, um, a little bit more regular as well. But having the physios come in and, and having discussions with the physios, most of the boxers uh, go to sports masseurs, chiropractors, and you never hear what is going on with the athlete and what yeah. they actually need to do. And you'll get it broken down, Chinese whispers, the worst kind of Chinese whispers ever. Going from a, a, a professional saying probably some scientific and, and some complicated stuff, saying it to a boxer, and then that boxer having to say it to you what they actually need to do is the worst game of Chinese whispers ever. Um, and yeah, ju- just just having everything under one roof, I think that's the that's the goal, um, and that's something that the UFC Performance Institute obviously they've got unlimited budget, 
well, they've got a limited budget, sorry. Yeah. They've got a, <laughs> seems unlimited. They've got a big to, one. They've got a big <laughs> one. Uh, but you still you still need the the um, the great guys like Duncan and <clears throat> and uh, Forrest Griffin to to guide that in in the right direction to make sure that that budget is used That's wisely right. and and there's a, a fantastic system in place. You know, I'd love to get out there and actually see what they do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, that's something that I'm definitely inspired by. So you've touched on, you said one key word just at the end there, and it's system. Yeah. So we've got a thing on our wall that says, master the things that take no talent. Yeah. What they have done incredibly well is, yes, aggregated these fantastic facilities. Yes, got the individuals there who are, you know, PhDs, great minds, lots of experience in um, combat sports. But they've also created processes and mm. systems and ways of working, and they have their methods. Not just that it becomes a, you know, a top-down or bottom-up mm. approach to information acquisition and, and knowledge transfer and communication, where people quite often work in silos, but it becomes very interdisciplinary. So everyone has the opportunity to communicate with everyone else to solve those big problems. Otherwise, you just get like, say, it's like Chinese whispers. Mm. It's like when my grandma goes to the the doctors and she comes back and she says she's got the worst condition ever. And they haven't said that at all. Um, And that's what you get, especially in combat Mm. sports. You can get that. Those mm. people working in silos. Yeah. And sometimes you can get people working to protect their own income as well. So they'll, yeah. they might say one thing to the boxer that ensures they have to keep coming back and keep coming back yeah. and keep coming back. That might not be in the best interest of the boxer. It's just in the best interest of their, their business. Yeah. When you've got an interdisciplinary team that's all working with a, a shared goal to improve the health and performance of that athlete. And those lines of communication are clear and you've got a clear strategy, you've got a clear process, the systems are clear. That's when the magic starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And taking time to understand that doesn't take any talent. Yeah. Putting those systems in place doesn't take any talent. Um, so that's what they've done fantastically well in, like yeah. I say, a very complex and chaotic sports yeah. systems processes. In a very strategy. short amount of time. And when we talked to Forrest Griffin on the podcast episode, don't know, <laughs> a few episodes back, just go back, it's about uh, November 2020 when we did it. And we talked to him and we asked like kind of how, how the UFC Performance Institute came about. And he literally went out to all the best sports science facilities, best mm-hmm. teams. He mm-hmm. went to Man City, went to a couple of other Premier League clubs. He went to NFL teams, NHL teams went to some colleges and stuff like that in America and just went around the best facilities and took the best things. So it's very, it, it's, it's very easy for us to say UFC Performance Institute because there is a direct kind of um, comparison that we can make on a small scale. Um, but how can you not be inspired by them when they've literally gone out, took out the best of everything and put it together and, and the stuff that they've done within the a relatively short amount of time is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, another thing that I'm going to mention, and it's to my former colleagues uh, at England Golf. If, if you don't know, I worked at England Golf for hmm, six years, just under six years. 
I was a regional strength conditioning coach and their system is something that I want to replicate in boxing um, for, for youth sport. So basically, basically it was eight to 10 regional coaches. Uh, so I was obviously the Yorkshire, Yorkshire uh, regional coach and each coach has access to the boys and the girls. They have 10, day, 10 days of contact and they can use that 10 days whatever way that they want, whether that's uh, doing strength conditioning sessions, whether that's attending squad days, doing testing, mm. doing analysis with a golf coach and stuff like that. Uh, but it means that all the younger athletes, so they're all about under 16, ranging from 11 to 16 years old, and they had access to professional strength conditioning coaches from a young age, but these have met some sort of criteria to be in the talent pool for England golf. So these have showed talent to, that they might end up um, representing England golf, whether that's under 16, under 18, or, or within, within the first team as well. Um, and for me, I want to do that with boxing. Mm. It's always been a goal of mine. Uh, to have regional hubs um, and to have an impact on the, the uh, long-term delivery of strength conditioning in boxing. And I think that having these regional hubs around the country, I think that it'd be um, something to make sure that, that younger athletes are getting the right training for athletic development alongside their uh, technical development as well. Yeah. Um, when we started in 2014, um, one of the key things that we said was that younger athletes don't get strength conditioning until they reach yeah. GB boxing. Um, and the squad was around about 12 amateur boxers at that time. GB boxing has got a lot bigger now. So they've got um, over about 20. 50, about 50, uh, aren't they, in the whole pro uh, program? I think, I think 20 to 30, I think. Um, I think they're like basically they have two or three in each weight category, mm. so about 20 or 30. Um, but then England boxing doing a little bit more in, in strength conditioning, but it's still, there is, a, there is a stuff there. And if you compare uh, boxing with football, um, where you've got probably people that aren't going to be re representing England or in that talent pool, but they're at the academies, they're getting some sort of strength conditioning. I was at Sheffield United, um, from 2011 to 2014, 2011, there was in the uh, League One. So that's the, if people don't know League One, that's the third tier of English football. And they had strength conditioning for under eight mm. footballers. And some of some of them start to start turning pro. <laughs> I'm seeing like some that have turn, <clears throat> turned professional really? uh, at 16, 17. And I'm like thinking they'd have been that little, little, <laughs> kid just running around with like a little size three football just stuck to the field and I'm just like how, how, crazy, how much control they got but that's that that's kind of level like Sheffield United got a fantastic academy yeah. but they was in third tier of English football and they still had strength conditioning for under eights now we're talking about boxers that are maybe winning national titles maybe representing England at a youth level or junior level that probably haven't done any testing not done any kind of maturation assessments yeah. or monitoring, uh, not done like like strength conditioning or anything like that. And then in the long term, it's it's like 
where where they're going to be when they are representing England boxing at a senior level, representing GB boxing as well. So it's um, yeah, it's something that we that we want to help and, and engage with um, with the amateur boxing scene, and that's what we're doing with the Youth Athlete Initiative. Yeah. Um, we've set up three already. What is it? Eighth, ninth of February, ninth of February. So we're six weeks in. We've done three or four youth athlete initiative workshops. Um, one in northeast, uh, where we had thirty boxers, um, and then just uh, this weekend, just gone, went to Yorkshire Boxing. And we tested eighty mm. boxers, and this is all funded by Boxing Science to get the data, to give them some feedback, to to get them more engaged with with strength and conditioning, and make make it seem like more access, yeah. uh, accessible. And that's the key thing. That's something that we talked with Tommy and Kian yesterday is like <clears throat> they might see the pros training and think, oh, I'd love to train like that, but not know how to get involved. And there's many ways of getting involved. Yeah, you can get a program, but it's like they might not have that confidence to be able to do that program themselves. But it's like there's going to be more avenues. So this start of the Youth Athlete Initiative doing this, these regional squad sessions might be the start of creating something a little bit like England golf. And they've yeah. done a fantastic job over, uh, I think they've been doing it for probably about 10 years now. I came in quite early into the program, 2014. Um, and some of the, some of the players that I've dealt with, uh, have gone on to represent England, England golf at, uh, um, at senior level. Uh, gone to colleges in America and got got scholarships and, and stuff they like that. turn pro as they're like on the they'll be European pro. tour. Or yeah, PG. yeah. Oh, they're that age now, aren't they? Where uh, they'll get into they get into that age, but I think they're still at college at, yeah. at the minute. But that when you get in a a scholarship for a college yeah. in America, you know that you're pretty good. You, you're pretty good. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. So that it's showing that 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 system that system works. Um. And I love to be able to replicate that in 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 boxing somehow. Yeah. But yeah, I think like there is a scope to be able to do it. Um I think in like England boxing are you know, we, we have worked with them in the past. Uh they are wanting to get more strength. I've been there when they've had a nutritionist there, physio there, strength and conditioning coach there. But it's 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 such hard so hard because it is is developing, mm. there is funding things and and stuff like that so that's the reason why we're doing the youth athlete initiative because we want to start building it now um and fund it ourselves because if we were just waiting for somebody to come in yeah with a massive pot of money to help us get this off the ground um it's not going to happen yeah. we've been we, we've we've tried to get funding things before with um to strength conditioning bodies yeah. to national lottery to lo- those different things and it's like we're not getting the the funding, so how how can we do it? We've got Tommy, we've got Kian, we've got um, Kieran, our intern that are, are willing to give give their time uh, and start collecting data, start giving them feedback, start doing some workshops on plyometrics, core training, how to integrate the boxing science training methods in a very simple way into into the gyms, and then show them like kind of there is different ways that you can get involved if you want to get involved if you want to bring a team down for testing a training day if you want in a remote program where we're contacting you on whatsapp there are different ways that boxing science can help you uh, get the most out of your physical training so i think you've uh, raised 
two points there. One, I think you've answered the second yeah. part of the the question. Well, at least partly. Anyway, yeah, yeah. in terms of what what motivates you and what do you want to what do you want to achieve, and it, yeah. it is that it is literally grassroots from the ground up. It's not all glitz and the glamour, is it? No. You know, there's you know you've been don't to, want to be accused of that. <laughs> you've been to you know tens, if not hundreds, of yeah. amateur shows. You know, do, you yeah. know, done, done, do, you know, done a putting a, a load of groundwork in in amateur clubs gone around the country working with amateurs as well on understand that you know these young athletes are the future of of boxing yeah. you know and also the future of the the country as well mm. and so not only if we can you know show them how to to train um but also if we can pass on some some positive messages around mm. you know how to stay healthy how to eat well how to look after yourself it's like nutrition nutrition it's a massive thing massive yeah. massive because we, we we looked at um, some uh, some research where it's like the the pop like like basically the knowledge of of nutrition is pretty low. Yeah. Um, in amateur boxing, yeah. when they're having to make weight, uh, yeah. the over eighty percent are making the choice to have like extreme yeah weight cutting methods yeah. and like dehydration and everything like that and. Is, is to get out there to, you know, to go in with training first and then kind of guide them down a funnel of this nutrition, this psychology. Yeah. There's lots of different a- aspects to sports science. Yeah. Not all of these young athletes are going to turn into world champions. No. But a lot of them will hopefully yeah. be able to turn into responsible yeah. members of society yeah. and make good decisions. And if we, you know, we can help show them, even if it's in a tiny way, even if it's just like, you know, for one day, they might, and then like, they might be then looking at uh, us on social media mm. and acting as role model, role yeah. models by proxy almost yeah. through, yeah. through that. Then I think that's really important. Yeah. So that, that, um, having that, um, approach to developing young mm. amateur boxers and, you know, having that motivation to try and improve the quality of support that they receive, I think is, yeah. is really, you know, is a really good thing. And the other thing um, you said at the end there, mm. which is another good message is that you can't just wait around for things to happen. Yeah. Gotta go Sometimes you've got to take things by the scruff of the neck yeah, and, and make it happen Yeah, and take ownership. And yeah. if it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean you should stop. No. It, how many times have we tried to get the youth athlete initiative mm. up and running consistently? We've probably tried two or three times yeah. to, to do it. Yeah. And, it, and it and you know, other things take priority, but we always keep going back to it and try and keep getting it up and running. Yeah. And we learn from previous um, iterations of it and make improvements and, and go again. But mm. we can't wait around for people to, you know, to come and give you a nice check and say oh there you go there's some money for your, for your time and go out and do that yeah sometimes you, you just gotta feel, just gotta do it yourself i feel like it's for, for us it's giving back to to boxing we're in a very fortunate position now um and if it wasn't for working like working in boxing you know working with boxers yeah. we wouldn't be in the position that we are yeah. in now yeah so i'd love to give more back to to grassroots like yeah. with time and and, and obviously programs and and delivery and everything like that. And I think that the Youth Athlete Initiative is really important to us and, and to the future 
the boxing science and yeah. to the future of boxing. So mainly the 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 motivation for boxing science was to have an impact on boxing and the delivery of sports science yeah. to elevate the the training standards of, of boxing. And I feel that that comes across quite strongly in so like in our social media presence, doing stuff like this, spending uh, what should be my day off. <laughs> uh, do it, do it, doing a podcast to talk more about training, uh, putting out free loads of free content out there. We could like keep, train all these pros, do a load of kind of social media propaganda, yeah. uh, <laughs> and put high ticket high ticket price um, on on everything that we do. But we make sure that we yeah we have stuff that seemed quite expensive to some people. Such as the testing, such as the um, consultancy, and everything like that. But that's there for people that do want to engage to, to that level and mm. do have that budget. But we also have an option where we've got free or very low cost online stuff that can can help them um, improve their training methods and yeah. improve their physical performance. And with the youth athlete initiative, I think like we have had a few good goes at it. Um, We've learned a lot about what to do and what not to do, what works, what doesn't work. But I feel like like this next one now, um, 2022, uh, I'm really, really excited for it. And uh, Tommy and Kian uh, leading that as well. Uh, they've got a lot of time to, to give to that and a lot of enthousi- enthusiasm. And uh, I can't wait to see what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, six weeks in, uh, four sessions, four workshops, and we've tested going over 100, 150 boxes. So, yeah, unbelievable. And from a selfish perspective, my motivation is to become uh, a better sports scientist. Yeah. But I can only become a better sports scientist if I've got the athletes to work with and my mates to work with as well. Yeah. So if I didn't have you guys, if I didn't Mm. have the boxers, then how would I get better? Yeah. And all I'd be doing is spending my time in in a... book just Re- reading about uh, the <laughs> origins of stopwatches <laughs> <laughs> well i'll do that anyway yeah <laughs> um but so yeah you know there's a lot of a lot of respect mm. that you need to need to make to and you know there's a lot of thanks that you have to give mm. to be a sport scientist because you need people to help you along the way you need athletes to give 110 percent every session to be able to to for you to gain the insight mm. and to make into what you're doing yeah and to understand how it's working yeah for then for then you to yeah. to get better because of that. one's got told by an athlete the coach is only as good as the athlete is yeah exactly and you yeah. only get recognized for the 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 amount of effort that an athlete puts in mm. another athlete said to me um oh it's your job to get me fit and i'm just like no it's it's your job yeah. you've got to put in the work like yeah. i've this blueprint to elite performance which is on the wall that's there for everyone it's about the the effort yeah uh, so we wouldn't have the the reputation the research the massive amounts of data that we've got if it weren't for the, the athletes giving 100 percent every time yeah. them athletes that we um we mentioned earlier terry harper lorraine richards jordan gill uh hopi price stephen Cairns that are all fantastic athletes and they're all making fantastic improvements, but they're mastering the things that take their talent 
on a daily basis. Yeah. I think that is the best kind of outro to a podcast. <laughs> and I think we should just leave it there. We've got loads more questions, but I think we've spent about half an hour on Anton's question. So <laughs> I hope you appreciate that. Mate. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, I think we need to do another Q&A session because we've got another six questions <laughs> to answer. Uh, so yeah, so thanks everyone. Uh, thanks, Alan, for your thanks, time. Alan. Uh, thanks everyone for uh, tuning in. Thanks to those that have... Uh, sent in the questions and if you've got any more questions that you want to fire over to the Boxing Science Podcast, uh, we're going to do this on a more regular basis now. Uh, please contact us across social media at Boxing Science on Instagram or at Wilson underscore Boxing Science. So if it's too complicated for me, uh, go and message Alan at Ruddock underscore Boxing Science or at Red Zone Running. So many, so many Instagram, so many Instagram pages. If you're not on Instagram, uh, you can send me an email dannywilson at boxingscience.co.uk um, and whilst I'm asking you to do stuff if you'd like to hit a like a subscribe or even give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and then if you haven't checked out our partners Saga Fitness Specialist in Blood Flow Restriction Training uh, you can uh, check out the link in the description and you can get your hands on their BFL cuffs with a 10% discount using our discount discount code boxing science okay guys thank you very much for listening to the boxing science podcast hope to see you on the next episode